This morning I may preach God's word to you as we find that in Exodus, sorry, in Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to focus on Ephesians 1, the verses 1 through 14. So in Ephesians 1, we start reading at verse 1. There God's word says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory." In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. After the proclamation of God's word, we're going to sing together from hymn 72, verses 1, 2, and 3. Brothers and sisters, congregation loved by the Lord Jesus Christ, do you ever wonder about the purpose of your life? Do you ever wonder about how to find meaning or fulfillment in life? If I'm not mistaken, I think that happens to us different times in different ways. Sometimes it happens when you're a young person, you're starting out, you kind of wonder to yourself, you know, what is it all about? What should I be pursuing? But then other times, you come to a stage where there's a transition in life. Maybe your your children move out, or you retire. You kind of ask yourself, well, what do I I fill my life with? What do I do now? Or maybe in the years before that, when you're busy with all the normal, mundane things of life, that, that one morning you wake up and you ask yourself, you know, really, what is it all about? How should I be keeping myself busy, and and why am I doing all this? Well, you know, we answer that question in all sorts of different ways. 
If you're a young person, you're first starting out, you think to yourself, well, I just love playing sports. I love being athletic. Love to be good at hockey or, or at volleyball or getting married. Love to, to be married and to have children or being a good mom or maybe pursuing your career or making a lot of money. Or maybe it's about enjoying your, your working out at the gym. Or maybe you're into a place where you think to yourself, I'd really like to make a lot of money. Or I'd like to climb the corporate ladder. Or I'd like to be a good cook. Or I'd like to be an elder in the church. I'd like to be a great grandma. I'd like to be someone who's really caring. Well, you know, each of those things is, is beautiful in their own way. It's really beautiful that God made each of us different because there's different abilities, different interests, different things that we wish to pursue and that we enjoy pursuing. But you know, in his word, our Father also tells us that we have an identity and a purpose that's more foundational than any of these things. In the book of Ephesians, God tells us that we are the people of God and that he made us for him. What is life about? It's about knowing God and about loving him. It's about being found in him and about serving him. God chose you from eternity. He adopted you into his family. He forgave your sins. He gave you his Holy Spirit. He promised you a future because he says, your life is ultimately about living in relationship with me. He really loves you. And he knows that the best life that you could ever have is a life that's lived in relationship with him. And so we are the privileged people of God who are taught what, the, what our identity is and what the purpose and the meaning of our life is. But you know, real life, brothers and sisters, sometimes it gets a bit tricky because we know that. We know that our identity is found in Jesus Christ. We know that our purpose of life is to be lived towards the glory of God. But real life day to day, sometimes it's hard to figure out what that looks like and how that's supposed to work itself out. Well, it's not a new problem. You know, the Ephesians, they also struggled with this. They had to also figure it out and, and to learn what it meant for them. So the Apostle Paul, he wrote this letter to them. In the first part of this letter, he reminds them of the incredible blessings that they've received in Christ. And he also teaches them about their identity and their purpose in Christ. And so I've summarized God's word with this theme. God calls us to find our identity in him and to live to the praise of his glory. We're going to see in the first place the danger of seeking a false identity. And secondly, the joy of knowing our true identity. Now for us to appreciate the message of the text here, it's important for us to understand the context in Ephesians. So we're told in verse 3 here that Paul praises God for blessing us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And when he says this, he's not just referring to heaven as the place where God lives, but he knows that heaven is also the place where the angels and demons are. These are the heavenly realms. And he's introducing a theme here that he's going to come back to five times in the book of Ephesians. Paul is, is teaching the Ephesians 
of the ultimate power and glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, to appreciate that, we have to understand that that the Ephesians lived with a very different worldview than what we have today. We learned from Acts 19 that it was really a magical worldview that that they had. So most people in Ephesus, if you were a regular Ephesian, then you not only worshipped Artemis of the Ephesians as one of the the great gods, the patron god of Ephesus, but you also worshipped a whole pantheon of other gods. And these gods were not like the Lord our God. These gods were a lot like human beings. They were often pretty petty and pretty selfish. And so what what you tried to do is you tried to secure the blessing of the God for yourself. You wanted a blessing over your crops or herds, or you want a blessing over your children, or you want a blessing over the Olympic Games, that you can win the Olympic Games, or over sexual passion, or over success in your business, or over whatever the case may be. And so what you did is you found out which God was responsible for that part of life, and you worshiped that God. But the tricky part was that that God might be in conflict with another God. And if you worship the one God, it could be that the other God would get mad at you. And so the magicians, their job was to know all the different gods, to direct you who to worship and how to do that, and to do it in such a way that you didn't invoke a curse from one of the other gods. Well, it was quite a, it's quite a thing. You know, at one stage, these magicians in Ephesus, they came to faith in Christ. They realized that Jesus Christ has a far greater power than any of their gods, and they burned their books. And they had books worth 50,000 pieces of silver, 50,000 days' wages. 10 million bucks were the books that they burned as a result of their faith in Jesus Christ. That's a bit of the, the context, the background of the people here at Ephesus. Well, today, we don't have any kind of fear of these spiritual forces of darkness. You know, we don't have a worldview that accounts for that. Maybe if you're from South Africa, or maybe if, you, if you've been to PNG, Papua New Guinea, or some of the other cultures in the world, then you, then you meet people who have that kind of a worldview. But Western society, we don't think like that. And yet it's not to say that what the Apostle Paul says here has nothing to do with us, or he has nothing to say to us here, You know, the philosophy of our time, it's just as demonic as the philosophy back then. It's really quite interesting. There's a parallel passage in Colossians. So Colossae was a city that was just up the road from Ephesus. They shared a similar worldview. In both of these letters, Paul addresses, in the first place, the powers of the spiritual force of darkness compared to the power of Jesus Christ. Well, when he writes to this letter to the Colossians, then in Colossians 2 verse 8, there he says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So Paul warns the people here against human philosophies, against these empty traditions, and he says they're not only based on human traditions, but they're also the result of the elemental spirits, of the demonic spirits. So he's saying here, There's a lot of human philosophy that's going on in Colossae at this time that was actually inspired by demons. 
You know, I, I'd submit to you this morning, brothers and sisters, the same is true for much of the worldview, much of the philosophy of our time. It's inspired by demons. Maybe I'll just take a moment with you and spell out some of the basic philosophies of our time and, and what kind of impact that's had on our thinking. And to do this, I'd like to draw on a book written by Rachel Jankovic. She wrote a book, You Who. The subtitle is Why You Matter and How to Deal With It. So she's a, a philosopher, philosophy student. One of the first philosophers that she introduces here, someone you, you know the name, is Friedrich Nietzsche, lived about 150 years ago. And Nietzsche, he promoted the, the philosophy of nihilism, that God is dead, doesn't exist. And he said, if God is dead, then life is meaningless. Your purpose, your meaning, is not found in God because God doesn't exist. So your purpose, your meaning, is something that you need to create for yourself. In a sense, he was really saying this to his culture. More and more people were rejecting their faith in God. And so he's saying to them, well, if you're going to reject God, then you need to be consequent in your worldview. You need to realize that life has no meaning. And that's also what he personally, sorry, that's also what he personally believed. Well, today we hear about Nietzsche hear about nihilism, and you say, well, that's, you know, that's trash. God is alive. He exists. He's in heaven. He's real. And we, we look at this, and we say, you know, this is complete garbage. But, you know, nihilism, it has a kissing cousin that's way more tricky. It's existentialism. And one of the men who promoted the, the ideas of existentialism was a philosopher by the name of Jean-Paul Sartre. He lived in the 1960s. That's when he did most of his work in the universities. And his thinking is basically he again operated with the worldview that God doesn't exist and that you need to create your own meaning in life. And he had this statement. He made the statement, existence precedes essence. Existence precedes essence. And so really what he's saying with that is he's saying you exist as a human being before you have any value or worth as a human being. So when you're first born, when you're, you first come into existence, you're nothing. Your life means nothing. You have no purpose. You have no meaning to your life. You're not worth anything. And you need to add worth to your life by making something of yourself, by taking responsibility for yourself, by pursuing whatever you think is important. And it's as you pursue what you think is important, as you take responsibility for yourself, that your life begins to have meaning and value. And then you can get to this place where we have a very important and valuable existence because you've done something with your life. And so really what he's saying here is he's saying meaning and purpose in life, it's not found in being created in the image of God you don't have an inherent worth because God made you in his own image and God loves you. No, he said, you're worth nothing unless you make something of yourself. Well, back in the day, he taught these ideas at the universities. Today, you let your kids watch the, the Disney's movies. And this is the core idea that gets promoted in every single movie. It's on every single page of your newspaper. You have this, this poster 
You are the pen, the ink, and the poem. The message is, you are what you make of yourself. So get out there and do something. Well, one more philosopher, the man who drove these ideas even more deeply into Western consciousness is a man by the name of Abram Maslow. If you've taken courses at university about teaching or counseling or, or some of those disciplines, then you would have come across him. And he's most famous for what's called the hierarchy of needs. He had this triangle and it had five levels. And he said the most basic need that every human being has is the need for clothing and shelter, for food and drink. And he, he was also of the, the mindset that, that your life doesn't have intrinsic meaning, but that you have to create meaning for yourself. And then how do you do that? Well, he says, first you have this basic need, food and drink, shelter, clothing. And he says, if you have that, then you need the next need, which is safety from physical threats, which is employment and health. And if you're at that level, then the next level of need that you have is, is psychological needs, the need to be loved, and the need for belonging. And he says, if you're at that level, he says that you get to closer to the pinnacle of human existence. He says the fourth level of need is that you have the need for, for esteem and for recognition. And so you need to go out there. You need to pursue whatever it is that you want to do. And it's as you pursue those things that you, that you reach the highest goal, and that is self-actualization. And that's where you reach your potential in every area of life. You are at peace, and you are at rest, because you are living the life that gives you the most meaning, the most purpose, the life that you're most at home in. And so... What he encouraged is he encouraged that you do whatever you need to do to reach self-actualization. You need to do whatever it takes to be your best self. And so you get married to a spouse who brings the best out in you. Or you do some volunteer activities or you do some work that brings the best out in you. Whatever you do, you do it with the, with the goal, with the desire of being your best you and reaching the greatest sense of fulfillment. And what that also means is you also want to edit out of your life anything or anyone that takes away from whatever gives you meaning or purpose. And so we had this, this statement, you are your own masterpiece, so edit your life frequently and ruthlessly. Well, do you know where that worldview leads? It leads to profound selfishness, to self-centeredness. If you want the water, modern word, it leads to narcissism. You don't get married to support your husband or wife in love, but you get married because of what your wife or your husband will do for you. You don't have children because the Lord calls you to, to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and to subdue it, but you have children because you always wanted to be a mom, because you want to know what the experience is like to have, have children, and you think that you can actually do a pretty good job of being a mom 
or that. You know, the way it filters down is that you're not all that interested in Bible study because it's kind of hard work. But what you really enjoy is rather sitting back with the boys and having a few beers while you watch the game. And so you craft your life around whatever gives you the most joy and the most pleasure. You add in an interest in houseplants, maybe snowmobiling, and you add it out, a brother who's annoying or an aunt who's toxic. Well, how much hasn't that influenced our thinking, brothers and sisters? How much of your life isn't also centered around what you find fun or interesting or entertaining? How often isn't it about you? If you look at your social media feed, if you consider the conversations that you have with other people, how often isn't it focused on pursuing self-respect from the people around you? Maybe I can flip the question around. How much of your life is focused on serving, on loving and helping and serving the people around you without necessarily getting anything for it? Now, these days, sometimes we have in our congregation, we have a lot of employers. Sometimes I have a conversation with these employers and I ask them how it's going and where it's at. One of the common themes that comes back from the employers these days is that they find a really hard time hiring a young person who has an attitude of service. If you're going to hire a young person, almost from day one, the young person comes to the employer with the attitude of saying, what's in it for me? What do you have to offer me? Instead of, how can I serve you? And instead of being appreciative of the fact that they have a, a job with the company. Maybe if you want another take on it. We live in a congregation where we have a lot of young people, and so I get to do a lot of weddings, and that means I also get to do a lot of pre-marriage classes. When we have these classes, then one of the topics we talk about is we talk about merit or about family life, about having children and raising children. I love to ask the young people the question. I say, are you looking forward to having children? And most young people say, yeah, yeah, we'd love to have children. And I ask them, well, you know, would you ever wait with having children? Are you looking forward to having children right away, or what are you thinking about that? It's about 50-50. About half the young people come to me these days, and they say, no, no, we think we'd rather wait. And then, yeah, we'd like to do some traveling, like to get established financially, like to get to know each other. We'd just like to have some time before having the responsibility of having children. It's not a little reflection. It's, it's about me. It's not necessarily about, about service to God. Now, maybe another way of thinking about it, if you in the past had, had asked your grandfather or your great-grandfather, if you asked him the question, you know, do you find satisfaction in your work? Do you find personal enjoyment in that? You know, it's possible that, that he might have said to you, I don't really understand the question. What do you mean do I find satisfaction? Oh, yeah, I guess I do. I get to provide for my family. 
I get to look after those who, who God's entrusted to me. It's quite a different mindset that's come over our society in the last 50 years, brothers and sisters. In many ways, this idea of a personal fulfillment is something that's infiltrated every aspect of our thinking. And you know where it leads? You know, in our society today, you have someone who, who's a homosexual or someone who's trans, and if you engage in a conversation around that, if you challenge the person on it, then they take great offense at that. It's not uncommon. And part of the reason for them taking great offense is because they kind of think to themselves, well, who are you to question my values, what I think I should be doing in my life? But it's also this, this thinking, this philosophy, it's also the basis for the abortion industry. You know, if I'm expecting a child, and if, if having a child fits into my masterpiece, then I'm happy to have a baby. But if it doesn't fit into my masterpiece, then I'm going to abort the child because it doesn't fit for me. That's not where I'm at. We have it within our state. In West Australia, we have one of our MPs. He's a Christian man, Mr. Nick Garan. He's really been lamenting the fact that in West Australia, we've had, in the previous number of years, we've had 26 children who were born and who were left to die after they were born. And there was no police investigation. So most of these situations, the mother tried to abort the child the child was unwanted, but the child was born as a real, live, living baby. And they received no help. They had no medical attention. There was no investigation into that because the mom just really simply didn't want to have the baby. You know, that's what under, it's the same thinking that undergirds the whole euthanasia movement. If you are special needs or if you are in pain, if you're an old person, if your life's not worth living, then you should have the right to end your life according to what you want. Well, in the end, it's really quite a, a horrific worldview, brothers and sisters. There are some elite in society who, who think to themselves, if you, if you have a life where you reach this self-actualization, where you're pursuing what you want, then your life has value. But if you are one of the poor people who's in Africa or who's in Asia, one of, the, one of the poorer countries in Asia, and if you're just doing all that you can do to scrape by, to put together an existence for yourself, that you're closer on the spectrum to existence than to essence. And then your life is basically meaningless. You're disposable. Well, do you understand how dangerous the worldview is, brothers and sisters? Do you see how far the tentacles have reached also into your own life. It's in this context that the truth of Ephesians 1 shines very brightly. Our Heavenly Father tells us that we don't have to craft our own identity. At core, he tells us that our identity is found in him, that he is our God, and that he made us that he placed us in a relationship with him, that we have an identity and we have a meaning and a purpose that's found in him. If you want to know who you are, then you need to understand that your core identity is found in Jesus Christ. 
That's what he's saying here. He, he addresses the Ephesians right at the very beginning as the saints in Christ Jesus. You are the saints. You are the holy ones. You are set apart for God. By Jesus Christ, he set you apart. And your identity is in Christ. That's who you are. That's where you find your purpose and your value and your meaning and your significance. And then the Apostle Paul, he works that out for the Ephesians in the following verses. And he's got five things. He has five main areas in which he works out the identity and the purpose of the Ephesians. He says in verse 4, he says, if you want to know who you are, you are chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Even before God made the world, before you were conceived, God chose you. As an act of love, he says, you are mine. And I'm creating you. I'm bringing you into this world. I'm going to give you an eternal existence. And your identity is found in me. That I have entered into this special relationship with you as being the God who created you and who chose, chose you for myself. In the second place, he says that he predestined you to be adopted as sons and daughters. You are the child of Almighty God. He has adopted you into his family. What is your identity? You belong to him. He loves you as a father loves his children. He cares very deeply for you. And he says, you don't need to create your own identity. You don't need to find who you are outside of me because at core, your identity is in me. You are my family member. I've taken you into my family and I'll provide for you. And I will love you and I will teach you and I will train you and I will discipline you. And the next, he says in verse 7 that you, you received redemption through the blood of Jesus Christ. You received the forgiveness of all your sins. What is your identity? You're, you're a child, but you're not a child who's estranged from me. I don't hate you because you rebelled against me and because of all the terrible things that you've done to me, but you're a child whom I've reconciled to myself. I've redeemed you from all your sins. And for the Ephesians especially, this was a really powerful concept. The Ephesians, they lived in a society where there's a significant percentage of their population was slaves. One of the things that a slave could do, sometimes he would save up enough money to buy his redemption. He received manumission, freedom from slavery. Well, the Lord says, you receive freedom from a far greater slavery, the slavery to sin. And I've given that to you as an act of grace. I've lavished my grace upon you with all wisdom and understanding by forgiving all your sins and by restoring an open relationship between you and me. And so even though you may have done things in the past that you're really ashamed of, and even though you may struggle with sins today, he says your core identity is that you're my son, you're my daughter, and I love you, and I will do whatever it takes to overcome those things to be restored in a relationship with you. And then he goes on in verses 9 and 10. He tells us that he, about one of the secrets, one of the mysteries of his will. The Apostle Paul is introducing here one of the themes that he's going to get back to in the rest of the book of Ephesians. And he says one of the great mysteries is that his ultimate plan is to unite all things and all people in Christ. So God sent Christ into the world to bring Jews and Gentiles together. You have these people who hated each other, who were powerfully opposed to one another. They had this enmity, this antithesis between themselves. 
And Christ came to bring them to unity and together to bring them into the eternal kingdom of God. And so your identity is not found in being a Jew or being a Gentile. It's not found in your ethnicity, in your religious affiliations, in your background. But your identity is found in Christ. And he's going to bring all his people together into one. And he's going to bring them into eternal glory. And that's what he talks about in the last verses in 11 and following. He says that Christ has promised us an inheritance. You want to know who you are? You want to know what your purpose? You want to know what your future is? Well, you're a child of God. Your purpose is to know God and to live to the praise of his glory. And he says, your future is an eternal future together with God. You get to live with him. This God who loves you, who's adopted you, who's chosen you. You get to live with him face to face. He's going to care for you. He's going to show his glory to you. And it's going to be the best life ever. It's going to be the best thing that ever happened to you. And then he says that he's given you his Holy Spirit as a deposit of this future eternal inheritance. And the word for deposit here, it's, it's not just a guarantee, it's not just an assurance, but the deposit here, it's actually, if you want to think about it, you'll probably think of a deposit that you make on a home or on a car. You go to the bank and you're going to buy a new house, and so you, you, know, you, you say you'd like to, to buy this house, you need to put a deposit down. Or same thing with a new vehicle. You go into the dealership, you put a deposit down the first, the first payment on the car that you're, gonna, that, you're gonna, that you're buying and that you're going to take and you're going to pay off over time. Well, the deposit, it's, it's not just that you have an assurance. You don't just say to the bank, you know, I will pay you at some point in the future. But rather what you do is you give them the first installment. Thank you for ownership of this car. Here's the first installment, and I promise to, to pay the rest. And what God does for us in Jesus Christ is that God gives us his Holy Spirit, and he says the Spirit is a deposit. It's a first installment. He says the day is coming when you're going to live in glory. You're going to see me face to face. You're going to be righteous before me. There's no sin. There's perfect peace. There's perfect blessedness. There's a life that's just really beautiful. And today... You get a foretaste. You get to feel what it's like. Because I'm going to give my spirit, who's going to live in your heart, and who's going to let you know what that glorious future is like that I have in store for you. And so the spirit today, he makes us into new people. The spirit of Christ lives in our hearts, and it's through his power that we know God, that we have a relationship with him, that we love him, and that we live for him. And so your, your identity, brothers and sisters, is found in God. God chose you. And he adopted you into his family. He redeemed you. He forgave you for all your sins. He promised you an eternal future. And he gave you his Holy Spirit as a foretaste of that eternal future to bring you there. He sets you free from the power of sin through his spirit, and equips and enables you to live with him and to live for him. And so what our Father's saying to us here this morning is he's saying that if you're wondering about your identity, if you're wondering about your purpose, that you not try to pin it on being an artsy, craftsy kind of person or on owning a business 
aren't succeeding at some level of education. But he says, rather, your foundational identity is that you have been chosen and adopted and redeemed by Christ, that you're part of his family, that he's bringing you into glory, and that he's giving you his Holy Spirit as a foretaste of that. And if you know your identity, then you know your purpose, brothers and sisters. What is your purpose? It's to know God and to love him and to live with him. Your purpose is found in him. If you try to find purpose and meaning apart from Christ, then at some point it will happen to you that it proves hollow, that it proves empty, that it proves meaningless. If you seek your purpose in, in education, or if you seek your purpose in, in business, or in being really smart, or even in, in some of the beautiful things, if your life is focused on your marriage, or even if it's focused on your children or grandchildren, and you pursue these things apart from Christ, then someday it will all blow up. It will come to nothing. Because ultimately, your purpose is found in God. That's what the Apostle Paul says here in this, in this letter. If you look, he's, he's teaching us about our identity. In the middle of all that, he also teaches us about our purpose. It's in verse 6 there. Maybe you just want to open your Bible with me. We'll, we'll just read a couple of verses together. So Ephesians 1 look at verse, verse 6. Actually, maybe I'll start reading at verse 5. So verse 4, he chose us in him. In verse 5, in love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So it says here, you've been adopted to the praise of his glorious grace. God brought you into his family so that you would praise him that you bring glory to him because of the grace that he's shown to you. And he gets back to that in verse 11 again. In verse 11 there, he says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Paul's saying here that you have attained this eternal inheritance and ultimately to the praise of his glory. The reason God gives you an eternal future is so that you can join together with the rest of creation in praising and glorifying him for who he is and for what he's done for you. And the same thing is in verse 14. I'll keep reading in verse 13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. You were sealed with the Holy Spirit so that you would make it into the eternal life to the praise of his glory. What is your purpose? Your purpose is to live to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glory. The Lord our God is a glorious God. He's full of glory. He chose us. 
He redeemed us through Jesus Christ. He sent his son into this world to save us from all our sins, to bring us into this relationship with him. He loves us. And he's given us his Holy Spirit so we can live in an intimate relationship with him. And it's as you know him and as you love him and as you live as his sons and daughters that you will live to the praise of his glory. That everything you do, that everything you want will be focused more and more on who he is and what he's done for you. And when you live like that, brothers and sisters, then you're really living. That you're living the life that God intended you to live. You know, it's at that point that we realize how much we need the help of our Lord Jesus. Because what, what tends to happen to us is that we know this, we know that, that Christ is to be the center of our life, what tends to happen to us is that he diminishes in importance and that more and more the other things in life take over. If your life is this big, what the Apostle Paul is teaching us here is he's saying that God needs to be this big right in the center of your life. He made you for him. And then he gave you all the other things in life. He gave you a husband or wife, he gave you sports abilities. He gave you your, your business. He gave you your intellect. He gave you your relationship with friends. He gave you family members. He gave you a love for whatever hobbies you have. And all those things are a blessing insofar as they're related back to God and to Jesus Christ. But often what happens to us is that these things, you love your business, and it gets bigger and bigger. And it crowds out more and more things. Or you love some other aspect of your life and it gets bigger. And what ends up happening is that that thing becomes really big and then God gets squished into one of the other corners of life. And since that is what normally happens for us, God sent his son to do it right. When our Lord Jesus Christ came into this world, and we're told in John 6, verse 38, Christ resisted the urge to take center, center stage in his life. He said, For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. I came to do God's will. And he said, I did it for you. To cover all the times you failed to do that. And to to live in you with my spirit, to equip you and enable you to live that kind of life for me. And so it is possible to live the life that God intended us to live, brothers and sisters. It says we know Christ. It says we believe in him. It says we trust him. That he will give us the same focus for God that he had for God. That we'll understand that our identity is in God that will live our life to the praise of his glory. And it's as we live in that way that we'll experience the truly blessed life, the life where we have the right balance, where things fall into place in the way God always intended, and where we rest under his blessing. And then one day, you'll come into the very presence of your father. You'll see him face to face. And at that stage, you will live the rest of your life 
in a very rich way to the praise of his glory. Amen. Well, let's sing together, brothers and sisters. We're going to sing from hymn 72, the verses 1, 2, and 3.